Amen. Now we're working our way through the big story of the Bible, and today we're coming to uh, the story of Abraham, and we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, the first uh, four verses, and Emma is going to read that for us. So Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham, verses 1 to 4. Now the word of the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Well, we are going to think a little bit together about Abraham. We're going to be looking at Genesis 12. We're going to be looking a little at Genesis 15 eh, as well. So much that we could say, of course, about Abraham, but those are the couple of passages that we're going to be eh, thinking of. I don't know how your summer holiday plans are going eh, this year, but different from eh, everybody else's eh, or, or every, every other year that we've been doing it. But, but one of the things I used to love to do whenever you could go to somewhere new was go into an area and you would look up TripAdvisor and TripAdvisor would say there'd be an article, 10 things to do, 10 things to see in Edinburgh or in Killarney or wherever you were. And the idea was that if, if you did those 10 things, if you saw those 10 sites or did those 10 activities, then you would have a bit of an overview of the area. You, there would be more to see, there'd be more to do, but at least you would have seen the highlights. You'd have done Edinburgh Castle, you'd have walked the Royal Mile, you'd have seen Holyrood Palace and all the rest of it. And, and, and that's the idea that, that, that's really going on with this little series that we have uh, through the summer, The King, the Snake, and the Promise. What we're doing is we're taking the sort of the 10 highlights of the Bible that will give us a sense of what the Bible's all about and what God is doing. And it's not to say that there's not more to see and more to experience. Of course there is. But through these sort of 10 major landmarks, as it were, we've got a grasp of what God is doing. Now, we've already seen that God has made us in our world. We looked at creation. He made it perfect. And his first parents, remember we've been using that little scheme, his first, our first parents were very much his people in his place in the garden, and they enjoyed God's rule and blessing. That's a, a little description of what the kingdom of God is, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And then we saw last time, Genesis 3, that things went dreadfully wrong in the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They, they listened to the lie of the serpent, and they stepped into that place of deciding for themselves what was right and wrong. And that's God's job, of course. And so, in doing that, they became their own gods. And the worst thing that we can be is our own gods. We're not built for that. We're, we're designed to relate to the living and true God rather than to be our own God. And, and uh, uh, there was a terrible set of consequences that uh, came from that. They were no longer God's people in the same way. They had rejected His rule over them. They were no longer in God's place. They were expelled from the garden. And because of the barrier of sin, they did not 
joyfully submit to God's rule, and therefore they did not know His blessing in the same way. Now, the story doesn't end there, thankfully. God doesn't give up on them, doesn't give up on us. Even in the midst of His judgment, He promises that one will come who will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, and that's the first promise of a Savior. Well, the biblical story moves on. Uh, Mankind's rebellion is writ large on every page, and then we come to this major figure in the Bible's story, Abraham. And when we first meet him, he's called Abram, but for simplicity's sake, we'll call him Abraham all the way through. The book of Hebrews does that, actually, as it refers to him. Now, Abraham is, as I say, a tremendously important figure in the Bible, maybe the most important after Jesus himself. He, he's an ancestor of Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel by making that point as he traces Jesus' line through Abraham. If we read the book of Romans, as we were doing in some of our midweeks, we find that there's an entire chapter devoted to God's dealings with Abraham to show that justification is by faith. In Galatians, Abraham is the subject of two chapters that show that salvation is by faith and not by works. The writer to Hebrews describes all the heroes of the faith, and the longest section on any individual in chapter 11 is given to Abraham. He's a tremendously important figure. Now, you remember that God had, had promised to undo the effects of sin, Genesis 3.15, that the, the snake crusher would come, but for a long time it looked as if nothing was really happening. We have the story of the flood, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, and the divisions of the nations, but there's no obvious move towards salvation. But then with Abraham, everything changes. In God choosing Abraham, God is taking a very major step forward in fulfilling his promise to undo all that Adam has done. And there's a hint of that, actually, in the, the flow of the story. Uh, we haven't read it, but we can uh, maybe look at that sometime again, if you want, even on your own. In Genesis 5, for example, the, the list of generations is given from Adam to Noah. And after each person is mentioned, it says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. That's a familiar repeated refrain. And it's making the point that the fall has brought death, sin has brought death, and death reigns. The situation of the human race is therefore bleak and terrible. But then in Genesis 11, we have another list of descendants and the time spanning the gap from Shem to Abraham. And we read that list, and we compare it to the one in Genesis 5, and you'll notice the refrain, and he died, is not there. Now, now, those people did die, of course, but the hint is that hope is dawning. Something is changing. God is at work. And when we do read of that, we find that the next thing we hear about is God calling Abraham. So, this is a story of hope. God's arrival, or Abraham's arrival onto the scene is a story of hope. And there's so much that we could say about him, but we want to simply make two points today that are things that Abraham's encounters with God show us about God and how he works with us. And here they are. The two things are going to be on the screen. First of all, God's call shows that he is the author of salvation. And then secondly, God's covenant shows he is the guarantor of our salvation. 
So first of all, God is the author of our salvation. In chapter 12, we read of Abraham, but actually, first of all, we really read of God working with Abraham. In fact, God is the beginning of chapter 12. The Lord, it says, had said to Abraham, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now, here's how people sometimes think God works. God looks at the earth, and he thinks, is there anyone who is doing a decent job of living the way I would like them to live? Is there anyone who has an upright life or a a good heart, as we might say today? And then he sort of chooses the best of us. Lots of people think like that. But that's not how God works at all. His his call, his choice, his, his approach to us is not based on our merit at all. And we see that very, very clearly with Abraham. What sort of background did Abraham come from? Well, we shouldn't imagine that his people were people of great faith. In fact, actually, the, the reverse is true. Later on in the, the Bible's record, uh, Joshua says to the people, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. That was the Bible's assessment of Abraham's family background. It's underlined by the fact that they lived in Ur. Ur was a major city in its day. It, had, it was excavated in the 1920s and 30s. Um, scholars estimate that it had a population of about 300,000. It was situated on the coast at the outlet of the Tigris and the Euphrates. So it was a major center of trade, and the people who passed through it would have benefited from uh, goods from all over the world. And uh, there were people there from all over the world passing through its gates. So, so Ur was a city that, where materialism thrived, a city that was culturally rich, it was comfortable, but it was dominated by a false religion. There was a great ziggurat or temple of Ur, which the ruins of are still there today. It's a, one of those great stepped pyramids that you can imagine. And uh, it was a temple to the god Nanar. He was uh, the, the moon god, also called Sin sometimes. Nanar was the, not the only god in Babylonia. There were 300 gods who were worshipped, and their worship involved some very base practices, prostitution, human sacrifice even. So you, you see, it's, it's out of this pagan context that Abraham is called. In fact, Jewish tradition, we can't really stand over this, but Jewish tradition says that his father Terah was a traitor in idols. So you can imagine that this is the sort of background he comes from. So it's clear that, that, that Abraham comes out of this challenging background. There's no godly background for Abraham. Abraham lived in a place where his life was dominated by pagan gods from the cradle to the grave. And humanly speaking, there was no indication that he was going to turn into the man that he did. So, so God does not look down and go, there's Abraham living the right way. I'm going to work with him. In fact, God makes this point in Isaiah 51 whenever he says to his people, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. In other words, think of the unlikely beginnings that you had as my people. We, we almost might sort of paraphrase it by saying, what are the chances of things turning out the way that they did? So, Abraham's background was as unhopeful as it could have been. Now, what should that mean for us? Well, 
if, if some of us are listening and we're, we're not Christians yet, it, it really should point us to where our hope needs to be. In other words, it's not to be in us. Progress for us will, be, will, will not be about us finding something good in ourselves to show to God, to say, now, God, can I come to you now because look at what I've done but that would mean our trust was really in us, and, and, and our trust needs to be in Him, you see. He, he doesn't love us because of us. He loves us because He loves us. We've got to get that into our heads. And if we're Christians, of course, this should make us marvelously thankful. It should, it should cause us to say, oh, Lord, you know, I could still be an Ur. I could be like, like uh, Abraham uh, before he was called. I could be living an Ur, and yet you have called me to walk with you, and it was you who did it. Thank you so much. That should be the, the note of our hearts. It should also give us great encouragement whenever we think about our families and our friends who, who don't yet know Jesus, because we, we look at our society and we think, Do you know, our, our world is becoming so much like the world that Abraham came out of, an unpromising background. And yet we see here that this unpromising background is no barrier to the grace of God. If, if God can reach in and put his hand upon Abraham, well, then he can do that with somebody that we know, somebody that we care for, somebody that we're praying for, should encourage us. So, that's the first thing. God's call with Abraham shows us that he is the author of our salvation. So, so uh, sometimes people will, will ask us, you know, so how did you become a Christian? And it's very natural to begin that sentence, well, I, uh, you know, I did this, I, I grew up in this home, or I, I went along to this church meeting, or I knew this Christian person. But actually, the real answer to that question, it's not a question we would, a, a way we would normally answer it, perhaps, in normal conversation, but the answer to that question is, well, God, God set his hand upon me. God is the author of our salvation. The second thing is that God's covenant shows that He's the guarantor of our salvation. Because what God does as He calls Him is He makes a covenant with Him. This is sometimes called the beginning of the covenant of grace, which really runs all the way through the Bible. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is an unbreakable agreement. So, for example, we still talk about the marriage covenant, that's, that's perhaps one of the few places that we use the word uh, today. But look at how God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here is God setting forth the terms of his agreement. And you, you, you might remember that we've been looking with, a, a, with these little titles. We've just said this, that, that we're, we're saying that God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we've seen that that's been lost in the fall. But here God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to restore that. I'll make you into a great people. So God's going to have a people of his own. He promises a land. Go to the land I will show you. So God's people 
are going to be in God's place. And he promises blessing. I will bless you. See, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. This is, this is about the, the, the putting right of everything that Adam had lost. And in many ways, the whole of the rest of the Bible, right to Revelation, is the outworking of this. John Stott says the rest of the Bible is the outworking of these promises. Now, God comes and he repeats this covenant, uh, these promises to Abraham uh, in several different ways through Abraham's life. And in particular, in Genesis 15. And at this stage, Abraham is in the land and he doesn't own anything in the land. He is married to Sarah, but they are old and they have no children. So, the promise of a land which they don't own, the promise of descendants which they don't have, seems pretty ambitious. And in 15, a chapter, chapter 15, verse 8, it says that Abraham asked, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Now, you think of what Abraham's doing. That looks as if Abraham is questioning God. How do I know that, that you're telling me the truth, God? But, but it could also be taken as him questioning himself. Uh, you, you know, he, he knows that Adam has gone wrong. He, he knows that human efforts are doomed to fail. So, so maybe he's saying to God, now, now, Lord, in the light of what you and I both know, that human beings like me, Lord, are, are incredibly fickle and frail, how can we be sure that this is going to happen? And God takes him through the most unusual ritual as he promises this covenant. We're going to read that just now. So, it's Genesis chapter 15 and verses 9 to 21. So, you see verse 8 says, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? And then verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, "'Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own.' And they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will, be, uh, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking a brazier with, blackening, with, uh, with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. Now, so, you see what's happened. Well, you've heard what's happened, but I'm sure it's a, a strange picture in your mind. Abraham 
slaughters a number of animals. He cuts some of them in, in two, apart from the smaller birds. And, and, and this takes most of the day. And as the evening comes, Abraham sleeps. This thick darkness comes upon him, and God speaks to him. And God tells him that his descendants would most, in, most certainly inherit the land. So Abraham, you remember, said, how will we know that this will take place? And God says, they will certainly inhabit the land. First, they will be enslaved by a foreign land, which we know is Egypt. That's the whole story of the Exodus. And they'll come out with great uh, possessions. They'll inherit the land. And the reason for the delay is that the, the inhabitants of the land are not yet ready for judgment, but that day will come. And then this remarkable thing happens. This smoking brazier or, or a fire pot with a burning torch, they're, they're, they're visible signs of, of God. And they pass between the severed animals. Now, that seems like the most odd thing in the world to us. But actually, for Abraham, the point would have been pretty clear. Because the way that a high-level agreement or covenant in those days was made was this way. Literally, people spoke about cutting a covenant so if two kings were going to make a treaty, if you were renegotiating the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, way, way back here, this is what would have happened. Might have worked better than what we've got at the moment, but uh, never mind about that. Uh, so if two kings were going to make a treaty, they would do this, and they would both pass between the severed animals. And it was a symbol of their seriousness, because what they were saying is, if I break my word may I become like these animals? May I be cut in two? May my life be forfeit, in other words? May I suffer the curse of this covenant if I break it? And so, whenever we conduct a marriage, we don't just have a, a couple saying words to show that they are entering into an agreement. We have them do certain things that, that symbolize it. So, they hold hands. They exchange rings. Well, this was, you see, God not only saying things, He was declaring His promise with a visual aid, it, and it was the most serious thing in the world, and it could be trusted, you see. That's what, what God was doing. Now, the interesting thing is, you see, that if, if two kings were making this agreement, well, then both kings would pass through the, the animals. In other words, they were saying, I live up to my side, you live up to your side. We, we, I'll do my bit, you'll do your bit. But you notice in this case, Abraham, well, what's he doing? He, he's, he's, he's paralyzed. He, he's got this, this deep sleep over him. He's, he, he's uh, this deep darkness over him. He's doing nothing. It's, it's God who's doing it. And why is that? Because God and God alone is taking the responsibility for this agreement. He's saying the outworking of this promise, the outworking of this covenant, lies entirely with me. It doesn't depend upon you, Abraham. It depends upon me. You wouldn't be able to keep it, but, but, but I will. You won't be able to do your bit, but I will do all that is necessary. I am utterly faithful to my word. You see, the, the, the God, God's promise to bless and to save is, is utterly dependent upon Him. 
It doesn't depend upon us. Isn't that good news? You, you think, of where would we be today if, if God said, well, tell you what, so long as you do your bit, then everything will be okay. Well, what hope would we have then? No, God is the guarantor of our salvation. And if some of us are, are, are not yet Christians, sometimes one of the things that, that we struggle with is the thought, will I be able to keep it? I've heard people say that quite often. Well, actually, God is saying, I'll keep it. And that's what we need to rely on, that He will keep us. Now, there's an amazing truth here that as the Bible story unfolds, we will fully understand. And that is in order to bless us, in order to, to make a people for Himself who are by nature covenant breakers, God does endure the, the curse of the covenant. God passed between those severed animals, and not only did He say, may I be torn in two, as it were, if I'm not faithful to my word, but really He was saying, I will be torn in two, because you will not be faithful. You will not measure up. Your descendants will not measure up. And so, someone will have to endure the curse of the covenant, but you know what? I will take that too. Not only will I make a covenant with you, but I'll pay the price of its breaking. And then all those years later, Jesus would hang on a cross, and while He would not be cut in two, His blood would be spilled so that those who did not measure up would be made right. So, do you see how, how determined God is to bless us? He, he sets His hand upon Abraham in order to form a people for Himself. He makes Abraham righteous by faith, he, and He's so determined to, to bless and to have a people for Himself that He will allow the curse of disobedience to fall on Christ and not on us. So, creation, God has made us fall. We have rejected Him as Creator and King, and now we see that God is at work to undo that and to bring His people to His place under His rule and blessing. Do you know that's what we see about our God, that He's at work, that He's building a people for Himself. So, draw near to Him and be at peace. Let's take a moment to pray together. We'll ask God to help us, and then we'll remember the needs of some others and other situations at the same time. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to pray that you will help us to trust you. We want to thank you for the fact that though we are fickle and unclear about our intentions at times, we thank you that you are the God who is always faithful and who willingly enters into this covenant with us and even takes the consequences of our unfaithfulness. Lord, we are grateful, and we pray that you will help us to respond in faith, to trust you, to walk with you, to live with you. Lord, we, we want to come and pray for some of those situations around the world today that, that we know need your touch and your intervention. Lord, we remember South Africa with all of the 
unrest and riots there. Some perhaps have connections into that part of the world. And we pray, Lord, that you will bring some measure of stability, some measure of good and upright governance in that land. And Lord, we pray that you'll protect your people in the midst. Lord, we think of Germany and those surrounding areas that have been so dreadfully affected by flooding this week, and we realize it's just devastating for those people. And Lord, for many who have lost loved ones, Lord, we cry to you that you will help there, that you'll bring a practical help to those who, who need it. Lord, too, we pray that in this prosperous part of the world, you'll be reminding us all that, that our power is little, that our lives are fragile, that you are great. We pray for our own land, Lord. We pray for those who rule over us and ask that as they make decisions about these next weeks, that you give them great help. Lord, we, we find ourselves again uh, facing so much uncertainty and you know, Lord, that we want to see freedoms restored. We want to see the vulnerable protected. We, we want to see hospitals getting on with the jobs of doing scheduled operations and helping those in need. And, and we do not know how all of these things fit together. So, Lord, we pray that you'll help. And we pray for those, Lord, who are in need. We pray for those who've been bereaved and those who are ill, those who are in hospital, those who are troubled. Lord, for all of us, as we need you. Grant us your mercy. And we pray humbly in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, our boys and girls, hopefully, are coming down the stairs as we speak. So, we'll have a musical interlude, Karen. Here they are. You know that's Stephen. There we are. We're, we're, we're just about to... to let, let's talk among yourselves for a moment and... Uh, We'll get them back. Great to see you back, boys and girls. We thought we'd lost you all together. Uh, glad you're, you're back because your picnic will be getting cold. And uh, well, Katrina, what did you learn today? We've had a great time this morning learning about God's promises to Abraham, that God is going to promise Abraham um, people, his family, going to bless him with land and give him lots of blessing. Great. Well, look, let's say a short prayer. 
just to thank God for what we've learned today. Thank you, Lord, that you worked in Abraham's life all those years ago, and your promises to him are still working out today. Lord, bless us as we trust you as your people, knowing that we're going to go one day to your place and to really know the fullness of your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.